Well, as we come to Genesis 14, we want to remember that in chapter 13, finally, Lot, who never was supposed to come along with Abraham to begin with, the Lord told Abraham very clear, leave your family, even your father's house. And, but, you know, his father, his brother, Haran died, H-A-R-A-N, Haran died, and he sort of took him as his son. So he's like, how can I leave Lot? He's like my son. But uh, after they got back from Egypt, they were so wealthy that Lot had so much cattle and peoples and they split. And, and Abraham said to Lot, hey, choose which way and I'll go to the other. And Lot should have deferred and said, oh, no, no, no. You're the patriarch, Abraham. I'll go the opposite. You pick. He didn't do that. He looked down in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah and it was lush and green and and it reminded him of Zoar, probably the Las Vegas of Egypt would be my guess. But uh, he, he had a carnal desire. And as you read that chapter, he first uh, camps outside um, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the next time we see him, he is carried away, as we're going to see tonight, with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in chapter 19, we'll, we'll see that he was living inside Sodom. So he slowly got brought in until he was corrupted, him and his family. But after Lot left, God said, Now, Abraham, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Wherever you put your foot, that's your heritage. It's for you, your descendants, forever. And Abraham came back to the spot he had been earlier before he went to Egypt, where he was camping between Bethel, house of God, and Ahi, heap of runs. And he built an altar there in between the two, just like us. We're soon going to be in Bethel, the house of God, right? Right now, we're sort of stuck between that and the heap of runs, and we just make an altar and worship. And uh, that's where things were at. Now, in chapter 14 is the first battle that happens... And what you discover as we read the Bible, it's a historic book. And, and, and the Bible goes into so many details that have been proven over and over and over through history and archaeology that um, the Bible just goes to nth degree giving details. And this one, it basically gives the geographical uh, breakdown of where every single kingdom was all through Israel and outside of Israel. Now, if you guys, you want to put the map up there for a minute? Um, so as we look at this map, and here it comes. There is a map. There, nope, nope, that's not it. We're getting closer, though. Okay, here's the map. So here's Israel, guys. Do you see this right here? That part there is Israel. This is the Dead Sea right here. And half of the Dead Sea is Israel's, and the other half is on the eastern side, which is Jordan today. It was Esau, uh, the Amorites, the Moabites, and the Amorites. But um, then you go up, that's the River of Jordan coming out of the Dead Sea going all the way to the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee region is in the north, 
and Bethlehem right here, Hebron. Uh, Bethlehem's right between. Uh, there it says Salem. That's the ancient name for Jerusalem. The time we get to Moses and Joshua, they'll call it Jerusalem rather than just Salem. And uh, right between the two is Bethlehem. So it's in the southern part. And uh, the Dead Sea is the lowest spot on planet Earth. And it's the lowest body of water on Earth. And Galilee is the lowest freshwater on Earth, about 800 feet below sea levels. This is around 1,600 feet below sea level. And so today, when you go up past the Sea of Galilee, that's Lebanon by the ocean, and you come inland, and sort of almost even with the sea, uh, sea of Galilee, but further east is Syria. And so that's where you'll find Damascus and you're going to see it. So these five kings were up in that northern, or the four kings were up in that northern area. And they're going to come down and conquer every kingdom. And then all down here is where Sodom and Gomorrah is on the Jordanian side of the Dead Sea. And right next to the Dead Sea is where that was. So we can actually find uh, the actual site. And uh, there is still things that are unique to that area where it clearly got destroyed by uh, fire. But um, it's just a wasteland, a desert now. But that's where it was lush and green at one time and where they were living, again, on the other side of the Jordan River. Remember, the Jordan River was one of the boundaries of the promised land. So I happened to find a little five-minute video um, on YouTube that gives you an incredible description of this battle and where everybody was. So I thought, man, this is a great thing. So we're, I'm going to show you this five-minute video now. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedarlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in sheva Kiriathaim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamer. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. 
Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. That little five-minute YouTube video is on the email we sent out uh, to everybody, as we often, uh, as we do each Wednesday night and Saturday night. So if you want to watch that uh, again, you can. But he basically read the whole chapter 14 and gave a description of all of that. So hopefully that helps, okay? Um, I, I understand that's uh, quite a bit of detail there. But in chapter 14 here tonight, I'm going to reread this and make a few more points that he didn't quite make. But in chapter 14, it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, um, Ariot, king of Eleazar, uh, Kidoleamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the nations. So these kings weren't necessarily kings of big kingdoms. They were more like... Uh, of their tribe, and they may not have been very big either, but they still called themselves kings. Well, they made war. What was that? What, what's that, Chris? Oh, he's playing the video again. Okay. I, I thought it was the, the Lord's return or something. I wasn't sure. Got me there. Okay. So um, they made war, verse 2. <laughs> They got it working in the house. 
Oh, he's trying to put the map up. Okay. If you can, don't worry about it. So in verse 2, that they uh, made war with Bereth, king of Sodom, and uh, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Sh- uh, Shinab, king of Adamar, or Adam, and uh, Shimber, king of Zolim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So Lot ended up naming that area that he thought reminded him of Zoar in Egypt. He actually eventually named it that. And all these together in the valley of Siddim, which we showed was right at the very end of the Dead Sea there, that is the Salt Sea, 12 years they served um, Chedorlaomer for 12 years. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. They said, hey, we're not going to give you tribute anymore. So this went on for several months. And then in the 14th year, uh, Chedorlaomer, the kings that were with him, came and they attacked uh, the um, Rephim of Asher Turoth, uh, Karnim, and Zumam in Ham, and Imam in Java Kerathim. Now, it's interesting, those three groups, we're going to see them later, and they're actually giants that live there uh, at that time. So I don't know if they were giants at this time or not. But uh, either way, the Horites, and in their mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is in the wilderness, and they turned back and came to in uh, Meshpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Azor's Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adamon, the king of uh, Zebulim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in the battle in the valley of Siddim, right at the very end of the Dead Sea there, that uh, where Sodom and Gomorrah and all of those were together. They came together. So against uh, Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and Tidar, the king of the nations, and Am- Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and uh, Arioch, the king of Elshar, the four kings against five. And the valley of Sinem, the full of asphalt pits, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and uh, the remainder fled in the mountains. And so there the battle, the guys from the north come down uh, from Syria all the way down. They travel all coming all the way down and they then have the big battle, the four kings against the five. And they won again. Chedorlaomer and those kings who got together, they won again. But this time they didn't leave them there to pay tribute. They carried everybody away. They were going to sell them all off as slaves and they took all their wealth, 100%, and they were carrying it back to their, their uh, locations where they were kings. So now in verse 11 and 12, Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So they took it all. And also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and they departed. So... We discover now that Lot went from living on the outskirts uh, of that area. Now he's living in there with him. And what happens? Uh, It said earlier that as soon as he went down there, that that was a wicked place and they were wicked people. But they did have some really nice land and beautiful ponds and and, uh, just a lot of uh, the, the 
earthly comforts that make a, a nice place to live. But what happens to him? He's getting carried off as if he were one of them. So he is a child of God. Matter of fact, Peter tells us he was a righteous man. And the unrighteousness of Sodom and Gomorrah vexed him every day. But he's being carried off. Proverbs 4.14 says, do not, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, I knew this memory verse in high school very, very well. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Or the, uh, NI, the, new, the NIV translation, the new uh, international version says, bad company corrupts good character. Um, and then the New American Standard says, bad company corrupts good morals. That's the one I memorized when I was in high school. Bad company corrupts good morals. And we're going to see that very thing in Lot and, and his family. But Lot is suffering because of who he was hanging out with. That's sort of the moral of the story here. And these wicked nations uh, are getting conquered, and he is also conquered along with them. Well, in verse 13 and 14, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. First time the name Hebrew is in the Bible. For he dwelt in the Tenerbeth tree of memory, uh, memory, the Hororite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of uh, Anur, and they were allies with Abram. Now remember, Mamre is right next to Hebron. And Hebron, which is right outside of Bethlehem, south of Bethlehem, is where Abraham dwelt most of the time. Hebron, if you remember, is where eventually they would all bury. The only time Abraham bought any land, he just bought a little speck of land to bury his wife Sarah, and then later others were buried there. Abraham was buried there, and, and Isaac and uh, others were buried in that same location. But interesting, Hebron also was where King David ruled from the first seven and a half years of his kingdom. When all 12 nations weren't accepting him as king yet, there was a time of uh, he was just waiting for all of the leaders to get on the same page. And it took about seven years. And, and he, had a, he had sort of a, a kingly castle, castle there too. It would have been uh, right next to all the farmland. And, and I think he went there during the, the various harvest seasons and so forth. But he went back and forth from Jerusalem to Hebron. As we read the Bible, you'll see that later on. Sometimes his kids would go to live in Hebron. And, uh, and it was also the place that kings were anointed in Israel as kings, was in Hebron. And these guys in Mamre, it's, remember, he, they actually said at one point that Abraham was in Mamre, which is Hebron. So it, the Hebron sort of the name of the larger area. And, and so these were his neighbors, just simply to say, these were his neighbors. Um, and it doesn't seem like... Um, that Abraham was necessarily in Hebron at that time, but uh, maybe in, around that area. But either way, they heard about it. They, got, they escaped. They evidently moved down there uh, to Sodom and Gomorrah. They escaped, and they came. And in verse 14, Now when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, referring to Lot, 
He armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, the word, the name Hebrew, um, we do not know. Many, as I pointed out when we were going through the genealogy, the name Eber, many believe that it, that came from that name. But there is as many uh, theories on what Hebrew, the name Hebrew means. Um, it, it, you know, some believe it comes from a Hebrew word that sounds similar to that, that's talking about a no man or a Bedouin, uh, a man who lives in a tent and travels. Makes sense. There's another one, another word uh, that sounds similar. They, they say it means the one who is from beyond, referring to the Euphrates River, or one who passed uh, is a passenger who passed over, again, referring to the... But we, we just don't know. The name Hebrew, uh, the name Jew, we do know. The word Jew, uh, Judah, Ju Judea, that's to praise. One who is uh, praising or one who is praiseworthy. Um, and uh, definitely they, they called themselves that in re reference to God. They were the ones that praise were a praise, living a life in such a way that was a praise to God. But Hebrews, we just don't know. So you might be shocked as well as I am that he was able to have 318 guys that were completely loyal to him because they were literally born in his house and grew up. And now were men who were all they did. Their entire job was just learn to be soldiers, learn to sword fight. You know, you see sometimes those movies where they have the guys that they select them, all they do is sword fight all day and, and practice uh, all kinds of different uh, uh, from bows and arrows to spears, they could do them all. That's what he had. So man, now it sort of gives us a different idea about Abraham. He's got a lot of people with him, doesn't he? I don't think too many um, wealthy people living in the area had 318 soldiers. They could just right now pick up and go. But he did. He was a very wealthy man. Remember in chapter 13, it even said Abraham was a very rich man in livestock, silver, and gold. And uh, again, though, he's getting ready to go fight against the four kingdoms that just beat five kingdoms with 318 men. I think that was a bit of a step of faith, don't you think? I mean, now all of a sudden, 318 men don't sound so many. It reminds me of a story in Judges, though. You know it well. Gideon. Remember, he started with thousands, and God kept whittling him down until he had, what? 300 men, and he won the battle. So obviously, it was a miracle, a work of God, that they won this battle. But he chases them all, all the way up past the Sea of Galilee to the area of Dan. Now, this is interesting. You can Google this. But there is to this day, and we go when we tour Israel, it's called the Gate of Abram. And it is the oldest gate in the world. And it is right there where Abraham went in this chapter and fought against those kings and won. And he has that area. It's amazing tell. Now they drop you off on the other side of a forest, like, and you walk through this uh, nature preserve path through all these little creeks going by. It's beautiful. And then you come out, and there's some very powerful historic things that are other places in the Bible in that location. 
But Abraham was right there. He walked in those same places. And the stones that are, are left over from the uh, earlier civilizations are still pretty prominently there of this time. Well, a little trivia for you. Well, now to verse 15 through 17. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hoboth, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedor-Laramar and the kings who were with him. So um, he had this success. It was, he had a plan where he divided up his people by night. Sounds similar to the Gideon story. It really does. And uh, then him with another group of men charged, and then they came and took them uh, by surprise. But either way, they decisively won the battle, and now they're bringing all the peoples and all the goods, all the animals, all the wealth back down to uh, that area of Shittim and that area of, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? And it's actually right outside of what would be Jerusalem today. And uh, he was camping out there. He knew the next day that they were going to have this meeting, but probably more of a celebration. You know, it was sort of a victory day. It, they were going to probably meet at that location and they were going to be reunited with all of their family. And, you know, they were definitely going to have some drum playing and musical instruments and dancing and celebration that um, something that could have been really, really bad. I mean, just think about it. These guys would have been slaves till the day they died. Most of their children would have been sold off and taken to foreign lands far, far away. We're talking that these five kingdoms would have been dust. They would have been ghost towns probably permanently. But they went from that complete run to complete restoration because of Abraham and these 318 mighty men of valor. So it was... It was a nightmare that quickly was over because Abraham uh, was this mighty man. He was a, a hero. He was not a coward by, by any means. But the next day they were going to meet. And Abraham is probably there in his tent and he's got his separate section there uh, with his own campfire and, and, and so forth. And while he's there, this guy comes and meets him. And he comes up to him, and it was a special moment. And he introduces himself as um, Melchizedek. Mel means king. Zedek is righteousness, king of righteousness. He said he's from the town nearby called Salem which is Jerusalem today. And he said he was the king of that place, but he was also the priest of that place. There's only two other places in the Bible that talks about this guy, and you're going to be astounded 
at what we learn. Well, in verse 18 through 20, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and he blessed be God most high, who had delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. So Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Salem is the word peace. So he's the, his name means king of righteousness, but his kingdom is the king, kingdom of peace. So he's the king of peace. The king of righteousness and the king of peace. And he is also a priest to El Elyon, mighty God. El Elyon is the Hebrew name, one of the names of God, talking about God most high, or God who's so lifted up, he must be worshiped. So I am the priest where God is lifted up and he is worshiped in this place. Now understand, no Jews live there in Jerusalem at this time. Pagans live there. But yet God has always known that his son, Jesus, would rule there upon the throne of David, right? That Jerusalem, that place is sacred to God, always has been. And that location, that place is where Jesus has chosen to rule and to reign for a thousand years in the millennial reign on the throne of David. And he is also our high priest. So we are really getting a picture of Jesus before he actually would do all that he did, but he's revealing himself uh, to Abraham and having this amazing discussion in this place, Salem, that no doubt Abraham knew about, didn't know the people because they were very fortified and they were uh, people that no doubt Abraham stayed away from. But Jesus would be the king and the priest of Jerusalem. And then when there's a new heavens and a new earth, there's a new Jerusalem where again he reigns upon the throne of David and he is the high priest of God as we know. And, and Paul's going to take this and explain to a group of Jews in the book of Hebrews why Melchizedek was Jesus and why he was such an important figure. Now, you guys might know later when the priesthood would actually be set up under Moses. God arranged it for Aaron, his brother, to be the high priest. His sons would one day take the role of a high priest. And then the other um, family of the Levites, that's where Aaron was, Moses are from, the tribe of Levi, that they would be the larger group of priests. There were three different orders of priests, the Kohathots, and the um, can't remember right now, the uh, Merari, the tribe of Merari, and what? Merari. Yeah, Merari, good, jo good job. I was checking you. That's why I stuttered. I was going to see who would remember that. And uh, anyway, um, but remember, you had to be from the, the tribe of Levi to be a priest. You guys might remember the story of Uzziah, this very righteous king. But yet he hungered to be more than just a king, just like David did. If you read some of the Psalms, David's like, my dream is to be a priest. Or if I can't be that, uh, I just want to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. But I can't. I'm not a Levite. If I can't do that, I just want to be a bird in a nest in the temple. I, I, I want to be 
where the presence of God is, but he couldn't because he was the tribe of Judah. But the king Uzziah goes in, he says, I don't care. I'm, gonna, I'm the king. I can do what I want. I'm going to offer some incense as the priest would do in the, in the temple area. And he was struck with leprosy and he had leprosy his whole life. He was isolated until he died. But he was a very righteous king. The Bible makes it clear that it was a great loss when he died because he was such a, a mighty man of God. And so this, this guy is the king and the priest, both, which is something that could not exist within Judaism. Now, Peter talks about us as New Testament believers. In Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he says, For you are a chosen generation and a what? Royal priesthood. You, won't, you don't know how many times I've heard pastors say a holy priesthood. And then if you go on, it says a holy nation. And they say a royal nation. We are a holy priesthood and a royal nation. That makes more sense to me, right? But it doesn't say that, does it? It says it's a royal priesthood. Why? Because the priesthood that we have is that of kings and priests both. And we are a holy people, his own special people, like the Levites set apart, like the tribe of Judah set apart to be king, like the Levites set apart to be priests. We are also a special people that may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. And of course, in Revelation 1, verse 6, and verse 5, it says, through his blood, through Jesus's blood, he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus says in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1, through his blood has made us kings and priests unto the Father. Jesus made us priests. And then in Revelation 5.10, it says it again, he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Talking about that thousand-year millennial reign. So he is the priest of God Most High. And then what does he do there? He gives him bread and wine. Interesting. Did we read that part? We did read that part, right? Where he gave him bread and wine? Did I skip that? I, I don't know. I'm losing my mind. This is sort of one of those unsurreal moments. Yeah, verse 18 through 20. Let me read that again. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. There it is. And he was the priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham. That was the other point. The greater blessed the lesser. And Abraham here was blessed by this guy, not Abraham blessing him. And he gave him bread and wine, which is, again, a picture of, of what we call communion today. Now there's an interesting passage in John chapter 8, in verse 54 to 59, where Jesus, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and uh, they're calling him all kinds of horrible stuff, and, and he's, he's 
giving it back to them, telling them they're sons of Satan and they're wanting to kill him. And that's what Satan wants to do. And, and, uh, and then it comes down in John 8, verse 54, Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. And you do not know him and keep his word. And then listen to verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, you're not yet 50 years old. He was actually 30 at the time. Jesus had a hard life. He was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. But at 30, he looked 50. But you're not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Which they understood. That's the holy name that God gave Moses to declare to the people. Then they took up stones to throw him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. So they passed by. So we ask, where did Abraham have this encounter that he clearly saw Jesus, the Messiah? There's a few places in Genesis, but I think this is the one he's referring to, which makes me wonder, what did they really talk about? All we have here is the greetings. We don't really have the substance of the conversation. But I think... Melchizedek, Jesus, told him the whole thing. That Salem is Jerusalem, where the Messiah would come and be crucified, and on the third day raise again, being the humble servant, being the sacrifice. I think he got it all, because we're going to see chapter 22 here in a couple of weeks. And you know chapter 22 is where God tells Abraham to offer his son Isaac. And he had, a, he had a, a pretty clear understanding that his son Isaac would not stay dead but raise again. He wasn't afraid uh, of carrying out that commandment because he knew it, his son would not end up being dead at the end of it. And so um, this priest of the Most High God blessed him. Now, here's another passage on Melchizedek found in Psalms 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn, he's declared unchangeable and will not relent. You are the priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow, that's it. David's writing these amazing songs. And all of a sudden, he begins to worship God. And, and, the, and the declaration comes forth. The Father has declared that you, Jesus, my son, are a priest forever. It shall never change a quarter according to the order of Melchizedek, a new priestly order. The first priestly order really established. And that order is king of righteousness. Salem king of peace. Remember, unto us a child was born, unto us a son was given. He shall be called the prince of what? Peace. Now, 
the giveaway here is Paul in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, so much insight. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter. Uh, that's an interesting description. I guess it was a heated battle, one of those uh, Braveheart moments, uh, battles, you know. It was a slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth of all, which is something we do only to God, right? Our, in our worship, the children of Israel later would be commanded to give a tenth of all to God. But he gave this tenth of all to this King Melchizedek, first being translated king of righteousness, his actual name, but then king of Salem, the name of where he rules, which is king of peace. Now here's the kicker, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days. Guys, there's only one person that can have that definition, and that's God. But made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. Boy, such great insight. That Jesus in heaven, we know the actual temple is there. The tabernacle on earth was a replica of the one in heaven. Remember when Moses was given the description of how to build everything from the priest garment to outer courts and inner courts, he was given an exact diagrams from that of heaven. So that was sort of a, a, a shadow, a picture, a, a replica of what's in heaven made on earth. And in heaven, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is also the priest in heaven. And he was always been the priest of heaven. And when he came to earth into human flesh, even though he was of the tribe of Judah, he was always a priest of God starts making sense. If you read the Gospels again with that in your mind, that Jesus saw himself a king of righteousness, the one who came and to rule and to reign in righteousness and to give righteousness to all who would be a part of his kingdom. But also, he was a high priest. And so much of what he did was that of a priest, wasn't it? That of the work of a priest. And this is where Hebrews is a book where these Jews that became Christians were wanting to go back to Judaism. And Paul, I believe Paul's the writer of Hebrews, is telling them no. But one of their arguments for why Christianity may not be true is because it repeatedly says that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. And their argument was that it can't be a sacrifice God would accept because Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. He cannot offer a sacrifice. Only the tribe of Levi can. And Paul comes back and says, no, he can because he was a priest of a greater priesthood than that of Aaron, which has ended, by the way, and would completely end in 70 AD. Uh, but he is a priest and offered himself as a priest, offered the sacrifice according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, bringing this thing home in verse 
uh, 21 to 24. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord most high, possessor of heaven and the earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I would take anything that is yours, let you, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich, or Abram rich, except only that the young men had eaten, and the portion of the men went with him, uh, Anner and Ashkel and Mamre, the, the other tribe groups that had come along with his men, let them take their portion. So, wow, Abraham, that night, which he knows what is the customs of the day. When you save a tribe or a kingdom from the people, the rule is you get to keep all the wealth as your reward for saving them. You got to give the wives and the kids back and everything else you keep. Now, he's got the wealth of the four kingdoms he conquered and the five kingdoms wealth that were just recently brought there to that place. So he's literally now adding to his wealth. He was already a rich man. He's got the wealth of nine kingdoms. I can't imagine how much that would be. But yet, after the Lord meets him, Abraham is no longer the same person. After he comes, the Lord comes and, and says, Abraham, you are the possessor of heaven and earth. Isn't that the truth? In 1 Corinthians 3, it actually says that. Paul says, all things are yours. I'm yours. Apollos is yours. All the earth is yours. God repeatedly says all through the scripture, the earth is mine and all that's in it. I, I was looking up to maybe put a couple of scriptures. It's, it's like, I don't know how many times, 20 times in the Bible where people are worshiping, saying, God, you're the God of the heavens and the earth and all that's in them to God declaring it. The earth is mine and all that's in it. The gold is mine. Silver is mine. All things, you're mine. All the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. Yeah, it's all the Lord's. And so when Abraham meets the next day, he says to the king of Sodom, and he's, he is not being nice about this. I wouldn't take a little piece of lever that broke off your sandal. I wouldn't take that little piece of leather that's yours. I want nothing of yours. And he tells him, I met God, who is the possessor of heavens and the earth. Now, if you go back and look at it, God calls Abraham the possessor of all things heaven and earth. But yet now Abraham turns it and says, I met the God who is possessor of all the heavens and earth. What happened in that when he took the bread and the wine? He, he realized, I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. And whatever God possesses, I possess. And all that I possess is God's. And, and you want it all, God? No, I want you to worship me with the tithe. 
give me the first, give me the best, give me the top. And 10%, you take 90% to live on yourself. But this is how you represent that everything you has is mine by worshiping me in the tithe of that 10%. And it's interesting, it doesn't appear that he was commanded to do that. It was just a word of wisdom in his soul going, this is appropriate in worship. Later it would be in the law and later Jesus would teach it. Uh, also is something we should do. But um, it's interesting because Jesus says it really all comes down to God or mammon. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24, do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a fact. Then he says something interesting in verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Not question mark, but explanation point. Now we read that and say, oh, the eye. I gotta be careful not to lust or be greedier. No, the eye in the Jewish culture was how you give. Matter of fact, we'll come back and read the last verse 24 in a minute, but in Deuteronomy 15, 9, to the Jews, how you give or how you don't give, it's connected with the eye, the eye being clear or good or the eye being evil or dark. Um, before, he says, beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of the release is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you and it become a sin among you. In Proverbs 22, nine, he who has a generous eye or a good eye or a clear eye will be blessed for he gives his bread to the poor. In Proverbs 28, 22, a man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. So now Jesus says, if your eye is clear, good, your whole body is full of light. And vice versa, if your eye is dark or bad, your whole body is full of darkness. He basically said, here's a litmus test. Because we don't often know, do we? I mean, David says, Lord, search my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. I don't know. I mean, I want God to be first in my life, but is he? Well, here's a litmus test. You guys know what a litmus is, right? To, to be able to look at the uh, acidic or basic uh, of the pool. You put in a little thing and then, oh, I need to add this or add that chemical. Well, how do we know where we're at spiritually? And he says the litmus test is how you view money, how you use money, how you steward money, and how you give money or don't give money. And if your eye is clear, then everything is good. But you can't say, I'm not going to honor God with my 10% finances, but I worship him perfectly in every other way. He says, no, the whole, the whole thing is on a foundation of darkness. That, and then he ends in Matthew 6, 24. For no one can serve two masters. Listen to this. He'll hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and what? Despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Now let's go back to think how Abraham was the next day. 
The next day, he has just been with the king of Salem. And now he's coming down to meet with the king of Sodom. This materialistic guy who had a lot of wealth, but he was also a very wicked individual. And after meeting with Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, had he gave him bread and wine communion, and he saw the day where this king, Melchizedek of Salem, would also be called Jesus, God with us, who would die for our sins and raise again, and he would be the king of my righteousness. And then he thought about all the wealth, and it just sickened him. And the next day when he sees the king of Salem, he loves God, but he hates this guy. You love the one and hate the other. You cling to the one and you what? Despise the other. So he was clinging to Melchizedek and now he was despising the king of Sodom. Isn't that where you want to be? You want to have your altar built between AI, the heap of ruins, and I despise it. I despise the worldliness and the materialism. And I love the other, the house of God, righteousness and peace that God gives us uh, in him. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And we just ask as we continue to go line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, that you would just continue to work your way into our hearts and our minds. That we would have that experience at Abraham with you. Many of us have, but we need it again. We need your presence to come. Oh, Prince of Peace, come. Flood us once again with your presence. Let us sit down with you and hear us bless Here you bless us. And we want your shalom, your peace, your wholeness, your healing. And until you come quickly, Lord, and rule and reign on this earth and we with you as kings and priests, let us hate the things of this world and help us love the things of God. Help us to despise the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We've sort of run out of time tonight, but I'd still like to have several of you pray quickly without pause, and and then we'll close with a song.
And we just ask, Lord, thy kingdom to come, thy will to be done. Mm. Search our hearts right now, Lord. See if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, and lead us in the way of everlasting. Cleanse us, wash us. Mm.